we're going to conclude our series, Reimagine Worship, today. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Psalm chapter 13. We've been expanding our vision of what worship is, that it's more than the singing time of the service. It's more than actually the whole service. That worship is a lifestyle. It's a response to who God is and what God has done. It's being aware of his presence every day of our lives and living for his purposes and his glory. And so we've been talking about worship being outside the church, being in your home, being at your place of work. Last week we talked about worship in this room, trying to expand your view of what happens in this place. And honestly, we just want you to be open before the Lord. We want you to be um, free to worship God as your heart desires. And sometimes because of how we've grown up, we're framed in of what's appropriate, what's inappropriate worship. And the Bible has all kinds of expressions of worship. And you don't have to adopt all of them, though I, I would encourage you that all of them are great. And last week it was so beautiful as voices were raised, hands were lifted, people actually came forward, knelt here, crying out to God. What God wants most of all is passionate, sincere, heart-level worship. And something happened last week that was really powerful at all of the services is there was an energy as we worshiped together. And I believe that happens when all of us are pouring our hearts out to God. But I want to talk to you today about another time when there's not that positive peer pressure surrounding us. It's those times when actually we feel very alone. Times when the words don't come easily, when it's very difficult not only to lift your voice, but to lift your hands or to even lift your head toward God. Times when you just don't feel like giving him praise or thanksgiving. And some of you may be in a season like that right now. A season that some would call the dark night of the soul or some would call a spiritual dry spell. A time when, when words don't flow easily, when emotions are, are kind of off kilter, when there's a lot of confusion and you question who God is and what God's doing in your life. And I know some of you are going through a season like that right now, but I want to tell you this. It could be one of the most beautiful seasons of worship that you'll ever experience. Because honestly, it's pretty easy to worship God when everything's going well. The real test is can you worship him when it's not? When the doctor says, I need to sit down, I've got the test results. Or when your boss says, There's, there, there are going to be some cuts around here and it's going to affect your department. When the doctor says to you, we can't find the heartbeat. When you get a phone call one night and it's a police officer saying, I need to talk to the parent of the house. It's when the principal calls and you're called to the school because of something that's occurred with your child. It's when a relative confesses to you that their child has been sexually abused. It's when you're told that your retirement funds have been stolen or squandered and you won't have them available anymore. What do you do in those times? What do you do in those moments when, when it just doesn't feel like a good time to worship? Well, I want to tell you, that God is still the same God in the bad times as he is in the good times. And he is still worthy of worship. I like what Pastor Rick Warren says, that your most profound and intimate experiences of worship will likely be in your darkest days. You all don't know this, but as we were cheering the baptism that just took place, you didn't know that a week ago yesterday that, when, that, that, that lady lost her daughter. And to be in a place of full surrender is a powerful, powerful testimony of faith. You read through the Bible, and you can, you can track uh, Joseph and the struggles he went through. I mean, in, in prison for a couple of years, asking God, what's going on around here, God? And, 
and Paul and what he went through, and even Jesus, Jesus, Jesus on the cross crying out, my God, my God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? We feel those times, and we want to be able to still turn to God in full worship during those moments. I think that sometimes we feel like God might be punishing us for sin, or maybe he's angry with us. But you need to understand that oftentimes those seasons where we feel far from God are part of our spiritual growth. When your little boy or little girl was a baby, you were around them all the time. You wanted them to know that things were safe with mom or dad. But as that child grew up, you needed to allow them to experience times of separation. That when they went off to a friend's house or when they're in their room sleeping or or when they went to school, that your love was still constant toward them, that you were still the same loving father or mother that you'd always been. And so our kids need to understand that separation is a part of the maturing process. Maybe God has you in a season where you're groping for him and you can't find him because he's actually maturing your faith. I believe this with all my heart, that God is not as near concerned about your feelings as he is about your faith. And sometimes when things don't feel good is when faith digs deeper. It's when your world's fallen apart, when you don't have understanding, when you don't feel close to God, that he becomes who he really has been on all along to you. It's in the valley of the shadow of death where the good, good shepherd steps forward. So my goal today isn't to give you really any simplistic answers, but here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to take you on a journey. That in, when you're in this season, and some of you, I said, are in this season right now, that when you're in the season of despair and the season of darkness, that you will have a pathway to follow. And so that's my prayer In fact, I want to just pause right now and pray that over us today. Father, we come before you. Speak to us now through your word, through the scriptures. And Father, I pray that you would take the men and women in this room, whether they're going through it right now or, Father, when they go through it, because they will go through seasons like this, that they will know the pathway to praise. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, last week I I said to you that some of the most beautiful words that God will ever hear are the original, spontaneous words from your lips. And when you read the Psalms, Psalms were largely those very things. It's, it's David writing a journal of, of his prayer requests, of his praises, and even his laments, his questions, his frustrations to God. And I believe God was honored by that, and he's honored by it when you do the same thing. But we find a lot of guidance in this man who Scripture says was a man after God's own heart. So I'm going to read Psalm 13, but I'm only going to take it two verses at a time. It says, How long, Lord... Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? First step on this pathway to praise is to face your pain. It's to face your pain. It's to acknowledge that I'm going through a real hellish time and and I need God, I need you to know about it. Because I think in our culture, we're pretty good at putting masks over feelings. I I believe the American church ought to be the safest place to get real with God, but you know what? We still have trouble that when people walk in and say, how are you doing? You you put on this front of, I'm doing fine, I'm doing good, God's great, when inside you're saying, but it's not. And I wish I could tell someone what's really going inside, but I can't, not even in my church. And we want you to feel that this is a safe place to bring your pain before the Lord. 
honestly, our lives are not the Christmas letter version. You know what I'm talking about? You get the Christmas letter with, that comes in the card, and you read it. It's, it's all the great things the kids accomplished through the year, all the awards and all the victories in their sports teams. And then you read about the vacation they went on, read about the pets and the babies they had, and, and everything seems great and glorious. And, and nobody ever writes in their Christmas letter, you know, but in May we went through a really tough time. In May, you know, our marriage really struggled and, and it almost didn't make it. We had to see a counselor or, you know, and our, our kid went to college in the fall. He got kicked out because of drugs or, or nobody writes in their Christmas letter, this Christmas isn't going to be a real happy one because we don't have money. Nobody writes that stuff. It, it's real. It's a real part of life, but we just put the, the sanitized version. But, you know, the reality is that life has pain. God gave us nerve endings that it, that it can experience pleasure and pain, both. And you know, sometimes it's hard to tell which is which because not all pain is bad. You get, you get chest pains, it's a warning sign. Aren't you glad you got that warning sign? Get to the doctor. Something's not right. It's a warning sign. Sometimes pain is a sign of growth, though. You know, you got a teenage boy who's, who's, whose joints are hurting. It's growth pains. You go to the gym and you press some weights. You come home, man, my muscles are sore. Well, that's part of your growth. It's pain, but it helps you to grow. Pain is part of growth as well as a warning sign of danger. And yet sometimes we don't allow people the place to process their pain. I'll give you an example. Recently I was at a home where someone had died that afternoon. The family was grieving. They're processing the news. And after about a half hour, a sheriff came over to the, the mother of the, the person who had died and he said, are you doing okay? And I thought, dumb question. Is she doing okay? And she lashed out at him. She said, no, my son just died. And he just got real quiet. I, I think, and I just want to give you some words of advice. There is nothing you will say to a person that's in extreme pain that will instantaneously, magically take away their pain. It doesn't help to say, I understand. It doesn't help to say, God will get you through it. It doesn't help to say, call me if you need me. Sometimes the best thing you can say to someone is simply, I know you're hurting. And there are times I've gone to people in, in grief, and as a pastor of 20, almost 30 years, I, I will put my arms around them and say something like, I know you hurt real bad, and I'm praying for you. You see, people just need a place to process the junk and the pain and the hurt within them. You know, Scripture says, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. And so you don't have to have the answer, because you don't. Give them the space to process. And so David, David takes this space in the psalm, and he says, how long, O Lord? How long must this go on? How long have I been waiting? How long must all this oppression from my enemies come? How long, Lord? And I don't know if it's, it's days, months, years. I don't know how long he's speaking of, but I do know this, that when you're in pain, minutes feel like hours, hours feel like days, and days feels like weeks. It goes on. I remember when I was in seminary, I was a single man, and I longed to be married to someone, and here I am wondering, God, how long must I wait? How long before you'll provide what you said you'd provide for me? How long, Lord? It feels like forever. Here, I'm 26 years old. How long, Lord? I don't think that was funny. <laughs> it wasn't funny going through it. But I reminded my son when he was 26 of the same thing. You know, how long, Lord? David's, and you know, in David, we don't know the story behind this prayer. 
But it's very likely when David was running from King Saul. If you don't know the story of David, David, who killed Goliath, shortly after was anointed as the next king of Israel. What you don't know, probably, is David waited 15 years before he was coronated as king. Now, you need to know this. When God calls you to something, we think, let's get on it right now. Let's, let's do it tomorrow. And, and God may say, hey, hey, wait a minute. I'm calling you to this. It's going to take a while to prepare you for this or to prepare the circumstances for you. So, so don't jump on it right away. But David's thinking, God, you called me to be king, but this guy who is the king now, he's trying to kill me. He's hunting me. David was like a jackal on the run, hiding in caves and, and constantly on the lookout. And so it's very likely he's saying, God, how long must this go on? God said, 15 years. When, when Paul was called to be a missionary, at one point he was thrown in prison. And he waited two years before the governor released him. Can you imagine Paul saying, God, I thought you wanted me to be a missionary. How are people coming to know Jesus in this prison cell? While he was in the prison cell, he wrote a few books of the Bible that you and I are reading today, but, and that sure has helped people come to know Jesus. But we don't always know what God is up to in the process of waiting. Think of Jesus, 30 years before he could go public with his ministry. How long, oh Lord? Maybe your question's not how long. Maybe it's why. Maybe it's why, Lord. Even Jesus learned to wait and suffer. In the book of Hebrews, has this interesting passage. The son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Jesus learned something. And he learned it through suffering. Some of the greatest lessons you'll ever learn will come in your times of pain. In fact, I think you'll learn far more in your pain than you will in your pleasure. And so God calls us to trust in him. It's during the time of waiting when he strips us of pride, of comfort, of self-reliance and security to really test if we truly trust in him alone. Peter wrote to a group of, of believers a couple letters, and in the first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Do you know how you purify gold? You heat it really hot, turns into a liquid, and then the impurities rise to the top and they're skimmed off. Do you know how God refines faith? Through the heat of trials. And sometimes through the heat of trials, here's what happens. The impurities within your heart rise to the top. You may blame your circumstances. You may blame the people around you. Say, they're, they're, they're doing all this to me. All these circumstances are making me this way. God, I think God's saying, no, they're not. They're, they're heating you up so that the stuff that's been in your heart all along is finally surfacing so I can remove it from you. So when you start to feel that junk rise up, say, God, take it from me. Get rid of this stuff. I don't want it. I want my faith to be pure. I want my faith to be in you and not in myself. So I just want to give you permission to raise your questions to God, to shout at God, to pound your fist on God's chest. Now, this isn't the end of it. This isn't the end of it. If it was, it'd be very disastrous. But, but God is big enough to take it. God is big enough to handle anything you bring to him. But it is a starting point. I knew a lady in this church years ago 
and she had pain in her physical body, and, and she, kept, she kept seeing, like, I'm going to have to say that I'm not hurting even though I am. And think that somehow was the pathway to her healing, and she never did get healed. I, I think she'd be far better off to say, God, this is where I am right now, but this is what I know you can do. Start by acknowledging the truth about where you are. Face your pain. Secondly, let's read where David takes this from there. Psalm 13, verses 3 and 4. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. Second step is press into God. You can't just stand with your feelings of of anger or discomfort or confusion Now you have a place to turn, and there's only two directions you can turn, toward God or away from God. You may have heard of the name Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens and his brother Peter grew up in a home. Both of them became atheists. Their mother ran away with the clergyman, later died with him in a suicide pact, and it contributed to Christopher Hitchens' belief that there is no good God. And he wrote many books, debated many believers, to defend his atheistic position. Many atheists arrived at their position not just intellectually but emotionally from a woundedness. Maybe one of the most famous is Charles Darwin, and you may think that his atheism grew out of his theory of evolution, but Darwin, who at one time wanted to be a pastor, had a little girl who got sick and died, and that was the event that caused him to reject God because he could not reconcile the fact that if God is good, why would God allow this very bad thing to happen? Christopher Hitchens turned away from God. You know what his brother um, Peter did? In his 30s, Peter gave his life to Christ. In fact, he spent his adult years arguing against his brother. He even wrote a book defending Christianity. See, atheists will say quite publicly the biggest issue Christians have to deal with is this issue of pain and suffering. If God is a good, good father, why do bad things happen to good people? And though it may make some sense in our minds, I have to tell you this. Those of us who sit in a pretty prosperous land can rationalize that. But if you travel to other parts of the world where there's extreme poverty, extreme persecution and pain, what you will find is a lot of faith. It may not be in the Christian God, But you'll find people searching for the higher power, higher authority. Why? Is because they feel that that's the only option they have. I mean, think about it. If you turn away from God, who else do you turn to? If you're mad at God, why why would you reject the God that you believe is powerful to do something about it? It's kind of like, if you get mad at Safeway for how they treated you one day, are you going to boycott groceries? Like, I don't like, so if I'm going to give up groceries, you know, I, I, God did something bad, or I think God did something bad, I'm just going to give up on God. Really? Who else are you going to turn to? David turned to God. One of the most powerful descriptions of Paul's life, and if you read Paul's life, it's not a, it's not a real pleasurable life, honestly. I, I told a friend of mine the other day that, uh, I've come to the conclusion, especially at this phase in ministry, being a pastor isn't fun. And I love being a pastor. But I would have to say it is not fun. When you get a call at 10 o'clock at night saying someone, someone's child has died, that's not fun. When you go to a hospice and hold the hand of someone and pray over them knowing that they're probably not going to come out physically alive, that's not fun. When you're sitting in a counseling session with someone who's going through some very bad relational issues, that's not fun. Now, those things aren't fun, but I would tell you it's rewarding 
Because what I have an opportunity to do is point people to the God who gives comfort. And Paul, in his life, if you look at Paul's life, he was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was robbed, he was persecuted, he was lied to, he was betrayed. And then Paul says this. Listen to 2 Corinthians. It's a long passage, but it's powerful. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. Long story short, Paul says, all the stuff I've gone through, God has used it for good because I'm able now to comfort you. And when you go through tough times, God will use that very likely to comfort someone else. But I, I want to tell you, that's not the primary purpose God's allowing you to go through. I don't think God allows you to go through a horrible situation to say, hey, that was your training because down the road I wanted this for you. It's just a byproduct. God says, this happened, I'm bringing you through it, and as a side thing, I'm going to use what's happened to you to be a blessing to someone else down the road. But here's where I believe Paul gives the explanation for what's going on in our personal lives when we, when we suffer. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. It was so bad that Paul was crying out, God, take my life. I can't handle it anymore. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death. Then he says this, but this happened. Not that God made it happen, but this happened. God allowed it to happen, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we've set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. And then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. This happened so that God would prove himself true to who he is. So that our faith would be true, genuine, that we are trusting. Sometimes when you're at the end of the rope and all you're holding on to is your faith in God, God says, that's what I want you to hold on to more than anything else. Don't hold on to your status. Don't hold on to your, your home and your, your possessions. Don't hold on to your reputation. Don't hold on to all these other things around you. Hold on to your faith in me as tightly as you can. And sometimes he allows us to get down to where that's all we have. And that's why David's praying, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. He's aware of the enemies around him. And something you need to be aware of in times of pain, times of suffering, is your position and your opposition. Your position is who you are in relation to Christ. You're a son of God. You've been born again. You have an inheritance in heaven. God has a plan for you. He's working out his will through all these great things. That's your position in Christ. But you also need to be aware that there is opposition coming from an enemy, the scripture tells us, is the devil. And it's in your times of pain and suffering where he will try to drive a wedge between you and God. Jesus is all about strengthening your relationship with God. Satan is about destroying your relationship with God. Jesus is called your advocate. Satan is called your adversary. And they have different agendas with your life. And you need to be aware of that, that something is happening on the spiritual realm in the midst of your pain. And that's why I love how David just cries out from his soul, 
to God in prayer. And, and the best kind of prayers arise out of your soul. I think many of us pray at the very surface. We, we pray prayerless. God, do this. God, do that. Thank you, God. And it's really here. You know, it's on the surface level. I want to ask you, when was the last time you were on your knees or knelt by your bed or lay down on the floor and in tears, in great passion, pleaded with God? God, if you don't come through, this is never going to happen. God, if you don't step in, something very bad is going to result. God, you need to do something because I can't do it. I'm at the end of my rope. I need you. That's what David's doing. It's a cry of the soul. Prayer, the best prayers you'll ever pray are those times when you just lay it all out before the Lord. He wants to hear it. He wants to hear the cries of your heart. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a fortified tower, and guess what the righteous do? They run to it because he is a safe place. He is a refuge and a rock. So David doesn't stop there. He's, he's coming to reality with, this is what I'm going through. I'm turning to God, but then the last part is the sweetest part because he declares where he's going to stand. Psalm 13 Verses 5 and 6. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Now, if you, if you follow this very short psalm, we know of nothing changing in his circumstances from verse 1 to 6. Nothing. Nothing changed. In fact, the only thing that changes is David's direction. He moved from focusing on, here's what I'm going through. Here's my problem. Here's, what I, here's the issue I'm facing. He, he, he went from there all the way over to, but now I'm focused on you, God. I'm focused on you. I'm focused on what you can do. I'm focused on who you've been to me. And here's the power. When you're going through a difficult time, you can stay focused over here, and God, woe was me, and here's what I'm going through, and it's so awful. But if you stay there, it's a deadly place to be. It's a sick place to be. You, it's okay to voice it to God, and then you move to the place of faith. But I trust it's a choice you make to go in a good direction. It's speaking not out of your feelings because your feelings are deceiving. It's speaking out of faith. It's like David's praying, God, I don't like where I am, and I need you. It's taken so long. Will you show up because I need something from you, and I know you're going to do it. Why? Because you've done it before. David says, but I trust in your unfailing love. By the way, that... that Little, little couplet, unfailing love is the next sermon series that we're going to look at the next four weeks. But he said, I trust in your unfailing love. Now, how can he say that? Think about it. How, how can he say that his love is unfailing? He's seen it. He's experienced it. He's going back. God, I'm, I'm thinking back through my life. And you did this for me, and you did that for me, and you did this for me, and, and you came through. And even though right now I'm not experiencing it, I know who you've been, and that's who you are. Because my emotions are, are deceptive and they're lying to me. And, try, and Satan's trying to use that to manipulate my thoughts, but I will not agree to them. A friend of mine calls it a portfolio of faith. Sometimes in the midst of your darkness to go back. Go back and retrace the path God has taken you on. And you'll remember who he is. See, I truly believe God allows us to go through those dark times because you would never know him as your rescuer if you hadn't been lost. You wouldn't know him as your healer if you're never sick. You wouldn't know him as your provider if you hadn't been in need. You wouldn't know him as your redeemer if you'd never felt you were in bondage. You wouldn't know him as the light of the world if you had ever walked in darkness. You wouldn't know him as the living water if you weren't thirsty or the bread of life if you weren't spiritually hungry. 
You wouldn't know him as the rock unless the ground beneath you was moving. And you definitely would not know him as the resurrection and the life if you never died. See, we know him because of who he's revealed himself to be in those dark times. In the midst of the darkness, I believe this with all my heart, you will have sometimes the greatest revelation of who God truly is. Because you'll be holding on to that truth with all the faith you have. So I want to give you some reminders, just, just a few simple reminders of why you can praise him. Because that's not only David that praised God. When, when Saul, excuse me, Paul and Silas were in prison for preaching the gospel, and they were shackled in the dungeon there, do you know what they did? They sang. They sang hymns. They praised God. Here, they were doing what God wanted them to do. They get thrown in prison. They said, God, thank you. Not thank you that you threw us into prison. Thank you that you are still the same God you've always been. And we just continue to trust in you. And here's some things that are rock solid. Number one, Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. That's just what Scripture says in the book of Hebrews, just literally that. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. If, if God didn't turn away from you in your m- most repulsive state of sin, surely he's not going to turn away from you in your deepest pain, even if you caused it to yourself. Two, God is closer than you feel. Listen to the Psalms where it says, The Lord is close to who? The brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. You know when, uh, when the weather is cloudy outside, did you know the sun is exactly the same distance it was when it was sunny out? Exactly the same. The only difference is there are clouds that have come between you and the sun, and so it doesn't feel as warm. But you can't trust your feelings in the warmth of God's love because because God is still the same distance from you that he's always been, and he's always been near, even when the clouds come between the two of you. Know this. Here's what um, Isaiah says about the Lord. Isaiah 43, 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the, the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. When you're going through these times where you feel overwhelmed, where is God? He says, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. Closer than you feel. Three, he will bring good out of it. Romans 8, 28. In all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. You know, I'm not grateful for everything that happens in my life. I, I honestly could say there are things that I am not grateful for. And I don't believe God says to be thankful for all the evil in the world and the death and the disease. I don't think, he tells us, thank God for those things. But he does tell us this, in those times, give God thanks. Because in all things, God works good. God didn't cause that to happen, but in even the most wicked situation, God can bring something good to the surface out of it. That's the kind of God he is. That's why he tells us to, um, to in all things, give God thanks. Not for all things, in all things. Not because of the things, but because of God. He's working something good. Here's something else he tells us. One day all pain will cease, Revelation 21.4. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Some of you have lost a loved one. Some of you have lost your spouse. And every day you are tortured by the loneliness, the emptiness that that person has left. But I pray that you find comfort knowing that there is coming a day when, when, when he will wipe the tears away and you'll be reunited 
and there will be joy again. We have that to look forward to. That's a comfort. And here's something else that Scripture tells us, that, that life is a gift. Life is a gift. And everything we receive that comes with that package, we recognize as part of the reality of life. And think about that when I look at the life of Job. Job was a man in the Old Testament. By the way, the whole book of Job is about a man and his suffering. He was a righteous man, a good man. And Satan came to the Lord and said, you know what, if, if this guy were tested, you'd, you'd, you'd find out that he really isn't a true believer. So God allows him to be tested. And by the way, testing and temptation can look very similar. Testing is something God allows to strengthen our faith. Temptation is something Satan leverages to destroy our faith. And sometimes it can be the very same event. Adam and Eve, it was the, the tree in the Garden of Eden that God said, don't eat. See, God said, trust me. I've given you all these other things. It was a, it was a test. Will I trust God and his provision? And they listened instead to the serpent. And they were tempted by that. And they turned against God. So sometimes they can, be, they can look very similarly, but God wants to use that to grow our faith. And so Job experienced calamity after calamity. He, he had his, his livestock stolen and his servants killed, and then his mode of transportation, his camels were all taken. But the worst of all was when his brother's house collapsed during a windstorm and all of his children were killed. And the Scripture says that at that time, when Job heard news after news after news that was devastating, he shaved his head. He tore his robe as a sign of grief. He was processing this negative emotion. It's tearing him up inside. But here's what he did. It says he fell to the ground and worshiped. And then he said this. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. You and I enter this world as naked babies, and we're not taking any suitcases with us when we go. And part of life, the package of life, Good things, tough things, some bad things. But you know what's, what's constant through all that? Who God is. Who God is. Because the name of the Lord will be praised. See, here's what Job found out. Job's friends all came, tried to explain things to him, and you don't see God for about 30-some chapters, and then God shows up and speaks to Job, and Job is speechless. Job, Job just listens as a force of God's truth and the force of God's voice comes to him to remind him who he is and who he's always been. And then God does something so amazing. He blesses Job more than he was blessed at the beginning of his life. He reminds Job that the good, good father is still the good, good father. That God's nature didn't change. Circumstances will change. Emotions will change. Events and seasons of life all change. But you need to know this, that God does not change. God does not change. God's character does not change. He is always worthy of praise. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the same God you praise in the good times is the God you praise in the tough times. And some of you need to be reminded of that because you don't feel like praising God. And it's not going to be driven by your feelings. It's going to be driven by a, a faith, a confidence, who God says he is.